Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Fred Schenkelberg. If you missed it last time, it was actually kind of funny because, you know, Fred and I were both kind of the math guys of reliability. So it's kind of funny that we ended up talking about the art of reliability. But today we're going to hopefully dive into a little bit of math and just a quick background on Fred. Fred is the owner of AscendoReliability.com. He's a leading reliability consultant. He lectures at University of Maryland, and he also co-hosts the Speaking of Reliability podcast. So obviously, if you haven't heard of Fred, go to AscendoReliability.com, sign up for the email list. Fred, how are you today? Hey, pretty good. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, it's uh, we we try we try to make the site useful for people so they want to go there and can get stuff done and and move forward. And that's kind of the idea. But yeah, we talked about the art of reliability a bit last time, and you know, you mentioned the math of reliability and the math guys. I saw a, a note on LinkedIn the other day that was what's with you know today's generation everybody wants to talk about big data and ai and you know and sensors and predictive maintenance and all this stuff yet none he this he was an older guy like me and he's complaining that but nobody knows what standard deviation is or why you need to understand measurement error or heaven forbid actually go do some calculations and i yeah it's an issue (laughs) (laughs) You can talk about reliability all day long, but until you pull out some data and do some fitted curves or do a non-parametric plot or something, do the math, um, you're not doing reliability. You're just talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's an issue. Now, now I'm going to blame the millennials, but I think it's far way beyond that. There's all kinds of reasons and rationale. It could be an episode in and of itself, why so many people shy away from math. Um, it's our friend. It's what we use to understand the world around us and see things that we otherwise can't see. So it's, I, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's not trivial. You got to understand it and make, do some work, but hey, you got to do it. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's true, and I, I, I mean, my experience, right? Like, obviously, I'm a mechanical engineer, graduated MIT, so I have done a little bit of math in in my day, and 
my experience is actually like you're talking about millennials. I saw it on the opposite end, right? Like I saw the management guys that you would go and talk to and their eyes would glaze over when I said something like why bowl or probability. Oh yeah. You know, and I think there's been an issue with statistics for as long as there's been statisticians. It's, in my theory is, or my hypothesis, I should say, is that people want to believe that they can go gambling and win. And if they, if you understand it too much, then that myth goes away and it ruins a, a pastime for some people. And I'm being facetious, but you know, it, there's all kinds of engineering disciplines and we do all kinds of incredible mathematics and, you know, tensor algebra and all this other cool stuff. And we do finite element analysis and there's tons of math buried in that stuff. Um, and it, almost every engineering discipline I know of and even hard sciences are going to learn how to do integration and, and differentiation. And yeah, I don't use it on a daily basis, but the concepts certainly apply. But when I'm explaining, here's a graph that shows the the probability of failure over time, and it's and it's the cumulative distribution function, for example. Um, yeah, people's eyes just glaze over, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. And some of it is very, very poor undergraduate statistics and professors in teaching. It's just kind of beat into you, and it's different enough from all the other math we've been doing that it's, it's squishy. <laughs> it's what I've heard one person describe it. Um, the other part is, is that we're, we're doing something different than regular statistics. So even if you know how to do probability for uh, a royal flush, when you do with reliability stuff, we're, we're looking at time-based information a lot of times. And so it gets in some of the items in our, database haven't failed yet, right? We might have a hundred motors and three of them have failed. What can we learn from that? Well, a lot, but it's a little bit different than anything that's usually taught in school. So I think it's a combination of not having a solid statistics foundation and application right from the start. And then on top of it is the statistics we do as, as reliability professionals is a little bit different than the what the quality our peers in the quality group would do and i guess kind of jumping off that i did get a question i was at the management manitoba summit uh i guess now it would have been a few weeks ago and one of the audience members they asked the question like how do you calculate the probability of and specifically about you know doing you know weibull or or that type of thing they were talking about like they got an abnormal reading on some vibration or they got an abnormal oil sample and they wanted to, their manager asked them like, well, when is this going to fail or what's the probability it's going to fail? Like, how do you answer a question like that? Well, one reading's not going to do you a whole lot of good. I mean, it's for something like that, the oil analysis or vibration and the tools that we commonly use to, to, we can tie into predictive uh, 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 well, I'm drawing a blank, predictive maintenance, I think it's called. Uh, there's a whole field called prognostic health management and the corollary or its sister is physics of failure. And so if you commission a new piece of equipment and you get it leveled and flat and bolted down and it's humming along, you take some readings, you get a baseline, 
right? On vibration. And then a month later, you make another measurement. And a month later, you make another measurement. And then what you're looking for is that that the signal in the, those vibration readings over time. So maybe the amplitude gets bigger, or maybe some a particular frequency changes in some for some pattern that's related to an internal failure mechanism. That takes a lot of work, right? And in creating that that model, that mathematical model that says, you know, if it's following this pattern, I, I'm thinking of the PF curve, right? It's a, it's a cartoon. It's just to explain a bunch of concepts. But if you can take readings that actually show a pattern that follows a curve like that, and you know when it's going to drop off to failure, you can project when it goes, then you can answer that question. But taking one reading or and not having a model associated with it, it's a guess. Just go ask your maintenance tech, the one that's been there the longest. They may be able to tell from its sound whether how long it's got left. But But if you're not, collecting the data on an ongoing basis and creating the models and using those to to learn what are those signals that is going to for, foretell when it's going to fail yeah a single reading is just you, you're you're not there you can't you know it's different you know it's off it's unusual but okay <laughs> unless you you know it, there's math involved here, right? It's a, it's a prediction. It's a, is it following a pattern that's going to lead to failure? And that's the part I think we lose people on is, yeah, take some investment. We, we need to understand what's good and what are the many paths to failure and can we detect those? Can we monitor those and follow them through to failure? I, I mean, the simple, simple analogy is the uh, for, um, uh, LEDs. Right, LED lights, a very simple device. They create great light, but they all fade over time. Eventually, they will fade to a point where they're not producing enough illumination for whatever it is you need. You know, if it's my reading lamp, it's once it goes to say eighty percent of its initial output, I'll call it a failure and say hey, it's it's not there. Um, if it's a measurement system on your line and it's going to fade. Well, how you can define where that failure mechanism is. And if you can measure the intensity on a regular basis, it's a pretty fixed curve once you know that particular technology. And then you could use that over and over again for any of the LEDs in a, from that same technology, that same methodology. Same for oil analysis or vibration or any of those other ones is once you get that baseline and a pattern towards failure, you're golden then. Yeah, you can, you get more sophisticated. You can adjust for temperature or run rates or temp, you know, or, or whatever other variables are important, but it's, you can model those. And that's a mathematical, uh, a math model is, is the easiest way to say it. And then back to your question, though, Rob, is, you know, if my boss asked me that, I, I just got my new tool and I plug it in and I go, oh, it's, this vibration looks weird. And he'll ask me, so when's it going to fail? This is, and I'll, I'll kick the cord out of it and you know, unplug it and go, oh, it just did. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's the only way to get true certainty. <laughs> That's right. right. Hit the, the kill switch and go, oh, yeah, it's going to happen right now. Click. 
and that's not that's true for whether we're dealing with maintenance you know uh, how quick can you fix restore this piece of equipment or how come this maintenance project's taking too long and all those other things there's there's a time element to it um what we don't want to do is go ask the ops team to take the plant down for a month so we can do a bunch of studies and wait for things to fail and like no they're not going to let us go do that <laughs> right but all, we have so many different ways to gather data we're in a data rich environment in most factories, right? There's sensors all over the place. There's all kinds of gauges and measures and, and the maintenance teams going off making readings. We just need to pick one or two of those and figure out how to use that to predict when failures are going to occur. It's, to me, that's the way to go. Yeah. I mean, the IAOT is so pervasive now that the data is there. And if you're not doing anything with it, that's up to you, really. Yep. Yep, exactly. So, Fred, you know, one of the things that I guess you're most passionate about is mean time between failures or MTBF. And, and like, I think the first time I got put on to you was you had an article about why people shouldn't use MTBF as a proxy for reliability. So why don't you give us your thoughts on like, why do people use MTBF? What is it? And like, why do people use it? Well, it's it's pervasive, right? Most data sheets include it. Uh, lots of companies have it available on their site. A lot of people that I run across will think, oh, I need the reliability for this motor. So what's its MTBF? They'll call the vendor and say, what's its MTBF? And it's a very, very simple single number that under very restricted circumstances actually is a measure of a, it's the inverse of a failure rate, right? But if you don't know over what duration or conditions it's, it was tallied in or, or calculated in, um, it provides little to no information. It's just an average, how many, the inverse of the average number of times a machine went down over some unspecified period of time. Now, all of that uncertainty works great, doesn't really matter if it's a constant failure rate. And there's this euphemism we use, in, I think early reliability engineers trying to explain different types of failure mechanisms, the early life and, and wear out and so on with the bathtub curve, um, said, well, there's this useful life section that is fairly constant hazard rate or hazard function is flat. And it just means that accidents, right? Somebody's going to drop something on it, a forklift hits it, there's an earthquake. There's a low-level set of failure mechanisms that in overall kind of appear pretty randomly and pretty consistent hazard for them occurring. So it's a consistent pattern that they show up. Not consistent pattern, I should say, but a consistent probability of showing up and generally low, right? In my 20, 25 years of looking at reliability data, I have yet to find anything that actually follows the bathtub curve. It, it's a, it's, it was a device to explain some things happen because of installation problems and they generally show up really early. Or if you make a really bonehead decision in the design, yeah, it'll show up when you first try to use it. And then if you work those out or it only affects a small portion of your your of those products, it'll look like the failure rate is going down. It's it, 
the failure rate itself is not trying it's it's our products don't follow any curve they don't look at the clock and go oh okay it's it's now my turn to fail no there's thousands of ways they can fail and all of those failure mechanisms are reacting to the environment around them their use and and, and weather and competing to see who wins who gets to fail first right and they're not looking at a clock they're not looking at anything they're they're just responding to the stimulus around them the useful life period was intended to explain the types of failures that occur in a random way, like a lightning strike, for example, unless you're a lightning rod. Uh, it's, and even those, the, when a strike occurs, generally occurs in a random pattern. Seasonally, of course, when, during thunderstorm season and so on. But so very, very, very few things actually have a, a constant hazard function or a constant hazard rate, in which case then the MTBF or MTTF, its sister, mean time to failure, would apply. And that's the exponential distribution. Now, one of the reasons it's so prevalent and so popular is back in, I don't know, Rob, are you old enough to remember uh, slide rules? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Apollo, I think it was Apollo 13 when they got in trouble and they had to refigure their trajectory. All these engineers pulled out slide rules to recalculate it. Right. Back, that was in the 60s with the Apollo space missions. Right. They, and when I was first in school and college, we used slide rules. Right. It wasn't, that was in the 70s. Calculators were five or $600 and that was, a while ago. So that was really expensive. And of course, prices of those things all came down. Our ability, even on our phones, our smartphones, to do the calculations um, is amazing compared to what we had available 20, 30 years ago. Unfortunately, the standards, the, the specifications, the, the way industry learned how to talk to each other about reliability continued to think that we were using slide rules and mechanical adders. So using a single number and assuming a constant failure rate was convenient. And, and I actually saw a YouTube video the other day of completely different cause, but it's willful. They said one of the most powerful reasons something like this doesn't change is willful negligence or willful ignorance, I think was the term. People know that their products wear out. Yet if I can have one number and assume it's a constant failure rate, life is so much simpler because there's exponential distribution is easy to use. Testing for it is trivial. Um, uh, calculating if it's the, in, the MTBF or MTTF is the inverse of the failure rate. So I say, all right, well, if I expect one in a thousand to fail um, and I'm going to run for a thousand hours, it should fail once. I only need one spare part. It makes life glorious, right? All the math is dirt simple. You can do it on a piece of paper. You can even do it in Excel, right? And, you know, and it's a single number. Managers love a single number. They don't want two numbers. They don't want to deal with this beta version that tells me it's useful information. That's two numbers. I can't deal with that, right? Heaven forbid you give me an equation. But that started out of necessity in the 50s and 60s because 
we had to simplify, right? Even the, the biggest computers we had available in 50s, 60s could not fit a, a Weibull plot in a meaningful way in, in any reasonable amount of time. We just didn't have the capability to do that. We had rooms full of people doing uh, the arithmetic using the tools of the day, which we can now do with a simple app on our desktop or even the calculator on our on our phones. Logarithms. Remember log tables? You ever see one of those in a museum? <laughs> I mean, if I had to do exponents, it was exceedingly difficult and tedious to do by hand. So we use we converted everything to logs. And there you could use simple math and then you convert it back. And so the heart of it was is that it was born out of necessity because we had to simplify uh, the calculations in order to even do them in any meaningful way in any time. And they were good enough because prior to that, we had nothing. We had basically saying, oh, we think it's going to be good. And so it got built into all the mill specs and it got built into procurement documents. It got built into the language of business. And I think that our ability to do the, the math has gotten much, much simpler. Unfortunately, our willingness and as a society of professionals, our willingness to do the math to, to, to in, use the technology we have available today hasn't kept pace. So we are purposely blinding ourselves to, yeah, there's a better way, but this is simple and I got a number, I'm good. Indip knowing full well that you're not at some level, anybody I've ever talked to goes, yeah, it's not good enough, but that's okay. Right. And they're not willing to peel it back to say, well, how bad is it? In, in any case I've run into where I've gotten that ability to do comparison, it's on the orders of, you know, 10 to 50% of your annual revenue is affecting decisions because you're using the wrong, using the wrong number. You're just being too simple and wrong. <laughs> I guess that's my passion coming through a little bit. <laughs> now that we have kind of have an understanding that it's wrong, like where should we start? Like what metrics should we use? Well, there's a, a handful of pieces to this. I, um, I was working with a client just the other day and they had the exact same question. Uh, and she asked, so what do we do? And I says, well, what do your customers, when, when a failure occurs, what happens? And he says, well, we have to roll a truck. We have to go out and service that piece of equipment. And they don't want us out there with our truck, right? So count truck rolls, right? It's put it in terms that make sense to your customers and, and do that. The math behind it, though, does not have to be just a count of how many times you roll a truck per year. Let's take a look at when did you install it? right? When did you do major overhaul? When did you replace those com major components, right? You, and they already know all that stuff, all this stuff, serial numbered and barcoded and tracking parts and what gets, you know, diagnosed and replaced and so on. All of that information is already there, but use the time to failure information. And for a repairable system, just use a mean cumulative plot where it's x-axis is time or operating hours or whatever time unit makes sense for your for situation, and the vertical axis is just the number of failures. And so you end up with like a staircase, essentially, 
And there are mathematical ways to model those curves and whether they're increasing or decreasing with time and you can interpret them. But a very, very simple plot, you don't even have to do any calculations except counting. Um, and you can get a pretty meaningful graphic of what's going on with a, a repairable system. Now you can do some calculations on that and figure out what's you know, for every repair we do, is the system getting more stable or is it getting worse? And you can make all kinds of comparisons and conclusions from that. Um, if it's, let's say you're you're replacing motors, for example, and you're, you have a pile of these motors that just seem to be the top of your uh, issue that you're dealing with day in and day out. Well, if you're replacing those whole, whole hock on the system, and they might be repairable in some other shop, but for our purposes, we just replace them. Well, that's not repairable. Now let's use Weibull, right? Or a log normal or whatever the appropriate time to failure distribution is. And I always start with Weibull just because it's so versatile. And you can use Mathematica or MathCat or R, which is free, or a handful of other uh, mini tab, which many organizations already have in-house. And there's lots of other packages that do this, but it allows you to do a regression. And usually when I mention that, I always make sure it's after 10 o'clock in the morning because most people aren't ready for any math terms before 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right. Let's do a regression. Let's fit this thing. Now we have a model of our time to failure for this device. And if we have 100 units and 20 of them have failed, well, is it a decreasing failure rate? Did we have a batch of, say, 10, 15 units, 20 units that were damaged on installation or something, and they're working their way out of the population and everything else is kind of humming along? Or is it an increasing failure rate that the first 20 have been in an increasing rate of arrivals? So, you know, we got one one week and then we got three the next week and then we got eight the week after that. Well, is that's an indication that, well, let's understand this failure mechanism. Is this going to happen in all the motors? And we better get ahead of that, right? But if you just did MTBF, you would say, oh, we had 20 failures. You don't know whether it's decreasing or increasing. And that's a very fundamental difference of why I don't like MTBF types numbers is they, they obscure the information you actually need to make decisions. And so a couple of graphical ways is usually the first step to going after this thing. In general, though, is set a reliability goal or target and then monitor its actual reliability. And reliability to me is, and, and to the reliability profession, is four parts, actually five, but four parts. It's what's the probability of success, right? What's this What's the chance it will survive in the duration, which is always paired with it? So I'm going to have a 98% chance that it'll survive for a year. All right. Now, if I start 100 motors, I would expect two of them to fail in that year. Like, I mean, I can do that math in my head because it's, it's pretty straightforward and there's no distribution or anything associated with it. But if I set a goal that I want most of them to survive, well, let's pin it down, give it a probability and a duration. And then what's its function? What, how do I know it's failed? You would be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be Rob, but the number of people that will argue over whether it's failed or not. 
it's smoking and on fire. And then another guy would say, hey, it's still putting out power. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then what's the environment? So when we are creating a product or specifying a product or trying to procure a, a part, it what's its function? What's it supposed to do? And you can define that. And we usually are pretty good at defining those things. Uh, what environment? We're often not good at communicating that. We might say it's in a factory. Well, a factory in Houston is a whole lot different than a factory in Alberta, right? Uh, humidity, snow loads, all those other variables are completely different. Um, and so, and duty and cycles and all those other aspects of it. You got to define all that stuff so that you and everybody else understands what stresses it's going to see and then probabilities and durations. Let's let's define those in a way that's interpretable by all concerned. Now, I didn't mention, you know, create a Weibull curve. That's, that's for an analysis of your time to failure data. You need some failures or degradation to, to, to track that. But then you can use those numbers to compare to your goals. Did, are we on target or not? And can we project out to a year or 10 years? Are we on track or not? Those, those all fit hand in hand. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I, I think I could talk about this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's great. And I guess, I guess if anyone's listening out there and they're looking to get started, like, how would you recommend they start implementing those, like those four things? Like, obviously they should already have the function defined, although again, most people don't, but the other, the other kind of three items that you listed there, like how should people get started? Well, the environment one, I mean, there, there, there actually are some decent standards out there and there different organizations have different ones that, but it's basically what's the weather around your product, right? And if it's something that's buried inside another piece of equipment, what's the local weather that affects your system? So what kind of vibration does it get? What kind of dust does it get? What kind of temperatures and temperature cycling does it get? And many, many organizations and data sheets list, you know, operating ranges and minions and max and all those stuff. That's not what I mean is go, go measure the temperature on your system and what's its range of variability? What's its anomaly at most of the time? And what are, are its extremes? And what's that distribution look like? If you're putting a, a, a wind turbine up in a location, say North Dakota, we'll go to the NOAA website and track down the databases for the local weather stations. And you can get 10, 10 to 20 years worth of weather data for that location. And you can get the weather, the temperature, for example, every hour for 20 years and put it in a histogram. There's your distribution of what temperatures it's going to, to experience, which is different than a standard saying minus 40 to, to plus 120. It's hyper-local to that location. And whether you're measuring it yourself or, or pulling out a databases for weather type stuff, that's great. I mean, wind might be a factor, uh, rainfall, snow load, icing, whatever is important for your particular product or system. And if those aren't available outside, we'll start measuring it, right? And, and not just min-max, but what's your 
range and distribution, simple histogram works great to convey that for your systems and for your for how what what's your environment. And then duty cycle, their use profiles. Are you running, you know, 24 seven or is it just one shift or is it occasional second shift? Is it uh, one bottle a, a day or is it 2000 bottles a minute? You know, what's your, what's the loads? What's the traffic? What's the uh, uh, use conditions that affect how it goes? Aircraft would be takeoff and landings, right? Hopefully there's a pair there. Um, they always map up. But is it short flights or long flights, and is it how many how many cycles do you go through in in a typical duration of interest? The probability and durations. There's a bit more to that, but it's essentially when you're setting a goal, those are driven by your customers and your business, right? So it's unrelated. I, it's not completely divorced of the technology of what you're dealing with because there's physical limits to what certain things can do. But it's if a customer really doesn't want half failures in the first three months, well, then make it a very high reliability target, say 99%. percent just throw it out a number for the first three months. And that sets a target for all concern that it should just work when we get it installed, right? It should be very, very, but you have to design it to do that. And, 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 and the installation, everything else has to take that into account. If it has a, like a one-year warranty on it, or you have a, your production projections are based on a, on a certain amount of availability on it, that's a business decision, right? And so knowing that a piece of equipment, what our maintenance loads are on it, well, we can't have more than three unscheduled downing, downing events for the year. Well, don't go look for the one that doesn't know what they're doing with reliability because you'll be fixing it every day. You, you need a, a pretty reliable one and so on. So you can tie all these probabilities and durations to customer and or business objectives. Um, and then we use the math of tracking time to failure to, to, to monitor those things and project out of those things. Uh, but to get started, it's if anybody ever says MTBF, say over what duration, and they're almost always look at you with a blank stare and go, well, well, 50,000 hours is the duration, right? He goes, no, <laughs> it's, it's not. That means you have a one in 50,000 hour chance of failure given some random test setup or data set they use, it doesn't say it, it's valid over more than one hour. It doesn't say it's valid for 20 years. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you. So what duration do you really want? And then I usually say, say let's say it's 50,000 hours for this new pump. And says, well, that'll meet our needs, right? And I go, well, wait a sec. Let's do a little bit of math, assuming this exponential distribution and constant failure rate and not, not do anything fancy with the failure mechanisms. But let's say that figure is actually true and all the assumptions are true and you want it to last five years, right? And they go, yeah, that's why I picked 50,000 hours. Okay, let's run this number out. And so we, what's the probability of it successfully operating for five years which is roughly 50,000 hours of clock time, right? A little bit less. And 50,000 hour MTBF value. Well, E to the negative one happens to be 0.36. And in that 
reliability function for for the exponential distribution, that means that I have a 36% chance of surviving for five years, given its reliability figure, its that MTBF value. And then usually that opens their eyes and they go, what? No, that can't be true. It, it only, on average, it'll last 50,000 hours. Well, on average, that means you have a 36% chance of success. It's using an exponential distribution because there's no negative time here, right? All these other factors, that's what it means. That's where it comes from. That's how to interpret it. And that's where that willful ignorance veil you can see it in their eyes like, well, I don't want to know this because that's not good. I don't understand this, right? You, you said there's negative time, but I have seen it on equipment running lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw it in a, uh, a data analysis customer group was doing. Um, they, they, they used Weibull++, which has a, a wizard that lets you fit like a dozen different distributions pretty quickly. And then it gives you saying, well, we think this one fits the best, but it doesn't really explain what the criteria it uses three statistical theory uh, tools to say, oh, this is the best fit. And so they said, well, this Weibull three parameter works great. And so when I said, well, let's interpret this a little bit. This third parameter offsets for when there's absolutely no chance for failure. And then go, yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you build something and it sits in a warehouse and has no chance of failing, then it's perfectly valid to account for that warehouse time, right? And it, it's perfectly fine. So we looked at it a little closer and I said, now, I understand that if you haven't built the product yet and it's in your negative, your time shifts it to three weeks, you have three weeks before you built it, it has no chance of failing. I perfectly truly understand that that's true. Um, but it, what it does is it shifts the rest of your distribution to, to not reflect reality. And you're, you're suggesting that there's a little or no chance of failing before manufacturing. Now that's not really the valid use of this equation and, you know, and all these other things. And, and they kind of, that's when that veil of, of confusion came over them going, what? You have to understand the distribution. You have to understand the formula. You have to understand the math. Yes. Just because you got it out of a computer doesn't make it right. <laughs> you said math there and I, I, my eyes glazed over. So. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Yeah. You, you're still recording, right? You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred, I mean, that was that was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, people enjoyed it too. I mean, we're gonna have to get you back on and dive deeper into it. But do you have anything to plug? Like it's now. I guess as we're recording it, it's June. But by the time this comes out, it'll be July. Do you have anything? Any conferences you'll be at at the end of this year? Well, no, no, no conferences. Um, uh, I have this. I, I made the decision earlier this year. Uh, to focus more on Ascendo reliability in part because I really think it's going to be, a, it is already a pretty great resource. we got a good, uh, I think we've just crossed 3,400 members on the site and 
we're, we're getting, you know, on the order of like with your help, also with your podcast, we're getting upwards to, you know, 2000 downloads a day during the week on occasion, uh, averaging to maybe 1500. Um, so we're, we're going gangbusters of getting information out there and we're getting tons of accolades for it. So I want to double down and spend more time doing that rather than spending time in airports and airlines. So I've, I've turned off all business travel to, to focus on local clients and get the website going. Unfortunately, the local clients have all figured that out. Now they're, it's one after another are calling. So it's, I haven't, still haven't gotten the website going. In July, we expect the underlying uh, foundation, the, the, the platform that the site is built on is going to go through a major update. So we're fully expecting something to have failed. So if you're listening to this and you go out and visit the site and something doesn't look right, please just get in touch with us. Let us know. It's a big site. There's tons of information there and more eyes on it would be great to let us know what's working or not working. And if you can't find something, just let us know. We'll, we'll either uh, help you find it or, or we'll get the right people to help create that content. But uh to answer your question, Rob, is no, I don't have any place that I'm going to, but I, except for the site. And in July, there's a big event where we're uh, figure the foundation is being uh, rebuilt underneath the site. So we, we got to make sure it's still stable uh, through that time. We're going to be launching a whole series of courses and bringing on new courses. So we're looking to expand that whole segment of the site. Um, just this month here in June, we launched a, um, I don't know what it's called openings and it's job openings. And what we've done is, is, is working with a number of different like zip recruiter and, and monster and a handful of these other sites that list openings, uh, for companies, um, set it up. So it's pretty automatic and the zip recruiter one, you can, you can search for the job title and location that you're interested in. And it'll give you results, current results and going back as far as you want. So it's pretty cool and it updates automatically. So once it's set up and running, which it is now, um, there, I think when I looked at it yesterday, I think there's close to 150 openings. Uh, some are a bit older, but the top of them, there's usually two or three new ones on the top of each board right away. And um, comparing that with what I already know about openings in my local area, it's pretty pretty accurate. It's a lot of people are are posting onto those sites, um, and so it's uh, just another one of the resources on the site uh, that pulls a bunch of different elements together to give you a good clean picture of what's going on. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on Ascendo. Like if you're listening. Go to ascendoreliability.com. You can, if you go to Reliability FM, you can see the other podcasts, not just mine, but other podcasts out there, you know, rooted in reliability, dare to know. Speaking of reliability, you have a few more on there. I can't list them all. And then another few of the ones I like and questions I get often have to do with universities that teach reliability throughout the world. And Fred, you have a list of those on Ascendo as well. You also have a recommended reading list. So there's lots of great content there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that reminds me. I need to update the... Um, I just got a, an email from somebody 
where were they in Toronto or Montreal? I don't remember which city talking about a, a local university that has a good reliability program. So I got to uh, get in touch with them uh, get their permission and logo and all that stuff and get it all set up. But uh, it's every year I learn of more programs. And so I think there's like 20 different universities listed around the world. And each one has a different flavor and, you know, what they work on, but, or focus on, but they're, if you need to figure out where to go, uh, whether it's a course or a book or a program or a conference, uh, we try to get it all up on the site in one place or another. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, I think you might be talking about University of Toronto. They have, they have a big department there. It's run through their mechanical engineering department, but it's called Seymour Center for Maintenance, Optimization and Reliability Engineering, I believe is what it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll have to track them down and get them listed. That'd be cool. Yeah. There's tons of good stuff there. So, and if there's, if it's not, let us know. We'll make it. Well, I was going to say, we're going to make it up. No, we'll, we'll get good information to you. We'll answer the question. That, that's the underlying premise of the site. If we make it useful and you get your answer, your question answered, um, or you, you find the technique or you see a tutorial or you learn something useful for you, then you'll come back. And that's the whole idea. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're listening and you want either something on the site, if you came through LinkedIn, Fred will be tagged in the post so you can send him a message or comment on the post. If not, just check the podcast notes. Fred, his, his contact info, well, his LinkedIn will be in there and you can send him a message there as well. And yeah, and also, you know, if you're looking for a course in reliability, either you can hit Fred up or me up. We're we're looking to build some new courses, so shameless plug there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. Awesome. So, Fred, thanks for coming on again. All right, no problem, Rob. And it's always enjoyable. It's a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>